0: Good morning church, if you have your Bibles, won't you please open up to Luke chapter 16 verse 1 this morning, Luke chapter 16 verse 1, and whilst you are turning there, I just want to let you know, uh, moms, we are working on the creche, so uh, hang in there for a few more weeks, okay? Um, and uh, we're just, uh, we're a family church, and so we just show grace to our kids, minds. probably the loudest, so um, I'm speaking from one very humbly here. But um, please uh, note that we're working on that, and that uh, um, there will be a facility where you'll be able to feel less stressed when your child makes a bit of a noise. But in the meantime, it's so good to have you in the service. Um, also just want to let you know that um, as we are growing, praise God, so we generate heat, not so? Yes. So um, we have two acorns that are working very hard and um, we're noticing that God's blessing brings good challenges and the good challenges as we're growing so we are heating up hopefully spiritually not just physically and um, so as we try and navigate just ways to make sure that we are comfortable um, just bear with us as well. Um, I do know that sometimes it can get very hot in summer but uh, we will do our best to look into that. Uh, Right so looking at this parable of uh, Luke chapter 16, verse 1. Last week, we had a look at a moment in Jesus' ministry which some of you might find a bit surprising. And that was the moment when the religious people of the day, those who really actually, in earnestness, wanted to please God, they really did, started criticizing Jesus for his behavior. And uh, specifically for the fact that Jesus' ministry was attracting the kind of people, the good people, the upright people of that day did not like to associate with. And we said last week that the the criticism of Jesus' ministry was that people were drawing near to hear him speak, but the kind of people that were coming were the sinners and the tax collectors. And we said, remember, that the sinners were those that were kicked out of the synagogue. They would be the ones not allowed into the religious service, the, the Jewish service. They would not be allowed to come to church put it that way hectic also we said that tax collectors were flocking to jesus and they were the very symbolism of hatred of rome now i can't describe to you enough it's like having a corrupt uh, return on your tax who of you submit uh income tax here all right any of you ever got a wrong amount back i got taxed double one year because i got a payout which in the end was legal, (laughs) Um, not towards me, I mean the tax was legal, not that I was receiving any unfair benefits, but it ended up being something like 13,000 Rand extra, Um, and that was a heck of a lot of money, and uh, I just remember going in there going, this is insane, how can you do that? Well, at least we've got a a legal tax um, uh, system in our country, in those days you had no appeal, so if suddenly you rocked up and the guy said, you owe me 30 denarius, but you know you only had to give 10, you knew where that was going, into the guy's pockets. And their hatred was the fact that it was their own people doing it. It wasn't the, the Romans. The Romans were quite cheeky in hiring the Jewish people, their own people to take in this money. And the result was that they were hated, hated. You did not invite them to your child's birthday party or bod mitzvah. They were the kinds of people that never cracked the invite to the dinner table. In actual fact, they were shunned. And the shunning was not just on a Saturday Sabbath when they would get together and hear the word in the synagogue. It was actively in society. So when that tax collector or when that sinner, that person that's outcast, that outcast of the religious community, came to the market, you did not speak to them. You did not have anything to do with them. You, in fact, actually treated them as if they were something smelly or something that was um, unclean in, in the concept of Jewish thinking. So... The parable we have today is Jesus still answering and defending his ministry. And I want to say this morning, as I've worked through this text of passage, I I am just blown away by the kind of picture Jesus presents to the world of what God is really like. And last week, we said that, um, we looked at the parable of the lost sheep, and we said that the reason for these people coming to Jesus was not that he was preaching a diluted gospel. In other words, he wasn't preaching he wasn't being soft on sin. We saw in Luke chapter 14 how he said very clearly, if any one of you does not renounce all that he has, you cannot be my disciple. Jesus the ask to follow him was big. And remember what we said last week that there are going to be times from this pulpit hopefully every Sunday that you feel a bit uncomfortable in where you're at with the Lord. Because until we get to heaven, church, there's work to be done. And the Spirit is working in us. And so when you hear challenge from the pulpit, when you hear challenge in a word being brought during worship, when your small group leader challenges you during the week with that, that out that Mark tends to do with his group and I do with mine, man, embrace it. But it wasn't the content of Jesus' preaching that was uh, um, Uh, in any way soft that these people were coming to him in actual fact it was the opposite but the criticism wasn't just the fact that uh, Jesus was having an audience with these tax collectors and sinners hearing him it was the fact that Jesus was actively pursuing relationship with them and it it struck me this week preparing for the Sunday of what we're trying to do as a church and it's important that you know this Jesus attracted people who needed to find him in two ways. The first was when people came into his presence, they felt incredible love and acceptance. And I'm hoping this morning that's your experience here. I'm hoping in the worship, if you've come in, maybe you haven't been to church in years, doesn't matter I want to say it was the people that felt a little bit ashamed of where they were coming from. When they came into the presence of Jesus, they felt such love. And I'm hoping that's what you taste here this morning. But he didn't just stop this. So as a church, we work hard. And I'm hoping that it's paying off in your experience. Some of you who have come for the first time recently. That when you come into the midst of Christ's community here, you feel the love and acceptance that he Showed those who came into his presence. We are attractional as a church. And so we never want anybody to come into the doors and feel ignored. And if that has been you, I am so sorry. That is so opposite to what Jesus was like and help us work on it. We want you to come in here and experience what they felt in his presence, which was 100% acceptance. But there was an element to Jesus' ministry which we cannot forget. And it was that he pursued relationships. He didn't wait for them just to come to him. He actually went and ate with them. And that was the criticism that these Pharisees had of Jesus, was the fact that Jesus moved out of the religious sphere or the the well-known comfort zone of Scripture and preaching and fellowship and the covenant and understanding all of these things that God had given his Jewish people. What he did was, he didn't just wait, he pursued. And when you hear Mark or when you hear myself or joey or the elders or your small group saying we are called to be missional church that is what it means is christ leaves his own comfort zone of disciples and he actively sought out those who were lost and that's all the point of last week's sermon the lost sheep that might not interest you i want to say it does to jesus and if i preach here and all that you see of your religious life before god is church on a sunday i'm failing Because when Christ is coming again, our job as your elders is to prepare you to meet him. And I want to say again this week, I've had to come before the Lord in my own life and say, God, I have ignored the lost sheep. I have worked hard in thinking of drawing people here to church rather than actually going. There's a second part of going, God, you're calling me to go and to do what you did, which is, put my eyes where yours are. And his eyes on the lost. You know know what it means to be lost? It means those who need mercy. And if we get so caught up with what we're doing here, we're missing the call of Christ upon the ridge. And you might find that intimidating. Well, I do too. But I want to say this. Don't you think if the heart of God is behind it, he's with us when we put our first step upon the water to do it? Don't you think if God's heart is for the, the broken, those that did not have any bargaining power in the presence of God, to come and see what God is really like, which is he doesn't just wait for those who need him to come to him. No, no, he goes after them. You know how he does that? It's through his people, through you and me. And so I just want to push you a little bit this morning, like I have to, when I work at the pharmacy, or when I'm going about the shopping center, or when I get any opportunity to rub shoulders with unbelievers, or those who need to hear how much God loves them, I want to say, can I push you in that direction this morning? That your purpose is not just to focus on doing well on a Sunday. Oh man, there's an adventure in which Jesus wants you to join him in, and that is actively having your eyes open for those need to hear him. And so this morning, this parable of the dishonest manager is by far the most difficult of the lot. And if I had to stand here before you saying that this insight from this uh, text is all mine, I'm lying, I needed a lot of help this morning <laughs> from commentators, um, guys like R.T. Kendall, J.C. Rao, Michael Eaton. And bats saying that sheepishly. There is something in this text for us this morning, church, that if you're willing to receive it, it could be a life-changing moment for you. So let's read together from verse 1 up to verse 8. Now Jesus is continuing to answer, remember, this accusation in chapter 15, verse 1 and 2. So let's read from chapter 16, verse 1. He also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, "Oh, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed, too ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? And the person replied, A hundred measures of oil. He said, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? And he said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. And this is the interesting of the whole text verse 8 the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness interesting for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light now starting out please this parable does not condone dishonesty okay (laughs) so if you are in trouble with your boss and maybe you've cooked the books a bit Please don't go and try and rewrite the receipts and cover up what you've done. I'm going to explain what happened in this picture, but Jesus calls this man dishonest, all right? And this man is in trouble for his character. That's very important. He's being called to account. And what's important about this guy is he knows, maybe like some of us this morning, that when the rich owner's accountant tallies up the books he's going to see that, uh-uh, there's something wrong here. This guy has been crooking. And uh, Jesus goes on to say that this man knew he was an incompetent manager. He knew he had been wasting his boss's possessions. He had not been stewarding this uh, rich owner's lands and estates well. And uh, suddenly he's at a crossroads. And uh, maybe this is where you are this morning. He's going, uh oh, oh. well, what do I do? I've got an appointment with my boss on Monday, it's Friday morning, and uh, the boss is saying, I want you in my office, and I want you to give account of what you've been up to. And so he considers his options. They might be you this morning. His first option, he goes, well, I definitely, I'm too like me, I can't do any manual labor. I'm too uh, fraught. I can't dig. Well, that's not going to work. I'm too ashamed. I'm too proud to beg. I can't do that. So how am I going to secure my future? And this is what it's like when you know you've done something wrong and you're trying to cover up what you've done. This is what happens when you know the clock is ticking and you've got a period, a window like this dishonest or shrewd manager and you're trying to survey your options and maybe this is your place before the Lord this morning. You are in extreme stress and you're trying to weigh up what you're going to do this morning. So this man, he's shrewd. Now that's a very, very uh, uncommon English word we use these days, but it means he's smart, he's clever, he's savvy. And what he does is this, it's very important, is he decides to go to all the debtors that uh, owe this man money. And he says to them, okay, Piti, come here, how much do you owe? Oh, you owe 100 oil, okay, no. Chop it down to fifty. I can't think of another name. Give me a name, <laughs> John. John, you owe so much. Come, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna reduce it by twenty percent. And the thinking of this owner was, or this manager was, this. He goes, well, I've got to hedge my bets a bit. here. If things don't go well with my, with my boss, I'm gonna uh, make sure that if I ever need to call in a favour. With these debtors, man, I'm going to make sure that uh, I rub their back so in the future they can rub mine. Smart guy. That's the first thing he does. But the second thing he does is he goes, how can I improve my, my boss's accounts quickly? Well, if you cut debt, man, they can pay it off quicker. So the bottom line looks better when the accountant has a look at the books on Monday. And now remember, as this guy is doing it, this shrewd manager, nobody of these dead, none of these debtors actually know that he's in trouble. What they're actually thinking is, your boss is amazing. That's what they're thinking. I mean, imagine, Joey, uh, you apply for a home loan, and, um, which I know they're busy looking at the moment uh, and uh, putting down roots somewhere. And so they find this amazing house. Imagine journalists go and they sign, and for two years, Man, there is, uh, they get the bond, they start doing decorations, but things get a bit tight, and then one day they get a phone call, Lisa gets a phone call and say, I want you to come in after school and bring Joe with you, it's the bank manager, and they sit down and the bank manager says, hey, Joe and Alyssa, I've got good news. I won't ask you who you bank with, but I'm going to say Standard Bank, okay? And they say, Joe and Alyssa, we have just decided, Standard Bank has decided to take 30% of your, your home loan. Wouldn't that be amazing? party yeah you'll be when they leave that office they're not going man that bank manager is awesome they're going standard bank guys standard bank's amazing man you got a bank with standard bank they are so generous man they saw that man we we um they honored our our relationship i've been banking joey's been banking since he was a little boy he's been putting in his 10 rand pocket money and they had this and you know what my credit to standard bank they just wrote off 30 percent of the bond wouldn't that make standard bank look good what the bank manager did? Oh, so clever. Because what this guy did was put his boss on the spot. He went out on the Friday afternoon to all of the debtors and said, hey, my boss wants to strike a deal with you. You've just been such a good guy. You've, been, you've, you've always been so good in paying your, your, what do they call the monthly repayments? But installments, you've been so good. And... Um, Let's just quickly cut a deal here. And you know what happens? What do you think the boss would look like if he went back to those debtors and said, sorry, there was a mistake. You've got to pay back the full amount. Hey? I hate center bank. <laughs> <laughs> Banks are all the same. <laughs> all they want is your money, money, money. So he knows. He knows how the boss ticks and that if he makes the boss look good that's good for business and if the boss wants to then go and say sorry I'm checking out this manager you didn't know but actually he's being under review and goes I want all my money he loses face and Jesus says this amazing point he says this shrewd manager gets commended he gets commended now what he did was legal okay what he did before the friday morning was not legal he was in trouble but what he did was he thought how can i get my boss into the most favorable position towards me is he thought on his feet and jesus said this man was commended because he understood his boss He knew that his boss wanted to be seen in the community as a man who's generous, as a man who's compassionate, as an honest, upright man, a man you can do business with. This man, this manager knew what his boss was like. And Jesus says this interesting criticism. He says this in verse 8. The master commended the disciples. What Jesus means is this. And this might be a breakthrough moment for you. Is that Jesus' criticism of those who should have known God, the Pharisees and the tax collectors, had actually no clue what he was like? Unlike this shrewd manager who knew how his boss ticked, who knew how his boss wanted to be perceived in the community around him, who knew what a kind of guy he was like, how he could get to the commendation of his boss, the Jews knew nothing about that, about their boss in heaven. And this is the crux of what Jesus is saying this morning. Is that he said, Pharisees and scribes, if you really understood who God is, you would be welcoming sinners and tax collectors. And in actual fact, like this dishonest manager, you have been poorly stewarding what God has given to you by grace. You see, what these Jews were saying was this, is that they were really a cut above the rest because deep down inside, they believed they had the inside track on God. That somehow they were cut above sinners and tax collectors because they knew their Bible. They were the bloodline of Abraham. They had the covenant of Moses. That these guys, they felt, you know what? We're pretty good. But Jesus said, you know what? You've missed it. Because if you really knew what the heart of God was like, you would know it's one of mercy. Because don't you know, Jews, none of you picked to be born of the physical line of Abraham. You got that by grace. I came to Abraham, your forefather. He knew nothing about me. I came to him and said, Out of you is the promise of my Messiah, Jesus. He's going to come from your line, Abraham. And every single child that came from Abraham's body, that had the promise of circumcision, had the promise of this coming Messiah, that the promise of forgiveness of sin, that the symbolism of a relationship with God through sacrifice, over and over again, God is saying, I came to you, Israel, by grace. And I came to you as a moon worshiper, Abraham, and I gave what I gave to you by sheer grace. And so you hold this before God as going, this is something that you have done. My friends, this morning, you need to know that if you know anything about God, it's by grace. It's by grace. And the second we begin to turn that into something that we have earned, we are a Pharisee. We begin to act like they did, where what becomes more important is what you look like before you can come to God. Where Jesus is saying, "Jews, you've misunderstood your boss, your master, your father in heaven. He said, don't you know, what you know about him has been given to you by grace. And Jesus' criticism is one we have to look at this morning at ourselves. You see, what the shrewd manager knew was that he had to make his boss look good. That was his way out. Was that if he could see and make his boss, his master, his, his uh, landlord, look merciful to those debtors. If he could make his boss look generous to those debtors. If he could make his boss honored in those debtors' lives, he'd gain favor. And I want to ask you this morning, is that the kind of picture people get of our master, our father, when they look at us? do you know what God wants the world to see when they look at the ridge? Do you know what God wants the world to see when they look at your life? Is he wants them to see a master that is merciful. And until that switches on in our minds, the kind of aroma we give off And this matters, church. This matters. Don't switch off here. Don't separate yourself this morning from going, Matt, oh, that's nice. We need to understand that God is merciful. It is something that people must not only hear from our lips. It is something that they must feel in our presence and something that they must experience in our actions. And this morning, Mark, Roger, and myself, cannot shape or honor the Lord at the ridge unless each and every single one of us take up this responsibility of understanding that what people see about God in heaven only happens through what they see in us. Are you with me? Is that the reputation of Jesus has been entrusted to you and me, and Jesus is standing there saying, "Pharisees, watch your hearts. Pharisees, guard your hearts, because God in heaven, your master." is not the one that you are portraying in the way you are living. And if we can grip this about God, that He is a merciful God, I'm telling you, it will not only change us as a church, but will usher in the greatest amount of joy and freedom into your life personally. I'm not preaching this morning just so that I can kind of make you feel guilty. What's at stake is your relationship with God. And this morning, the way I unpack that is this. You know the second your relationship with Jesus becomes heavy and a burden? It's the second that you switch over to performance. It's the second that you begin to base your confidence with God on how well you're doing. You know, it's the most depressing point of reference you can possibly have. And you know what begins to happen is when you begin to act like these Pharisees because you're so concerned about your performance, what happens is you begin to look only inwards at yourself. Because the real concern about your relationship with God is not really what's happening to others, is whether or not you're on the right foot with Him. And you know what that does? It kills our ability to love other people. Because we can't see beyond ourselves. And what could have started off as a rejoicing in a gift where salvation is given to you by grace? where you enjoy the freedom of being accepted by the blood of Jesus, that you know before the Father, He is loving you, loving you, loving you, because of what Christ has done, and that you can never earn that love, but that love has been set upon your life as a seal. That the moment you get saved, the Spirit of God comes and lives in your heart. And we sang it this morning in one of the songs Alexia chose for us, is that literally the moment you put your faith in Jesus, the Father and the Son come and make their home in you. And that the Father of heaven loves you with the most unshakable love. So that this is the scandal of the good news, church, and this is what makes it good news is that it does not matter on your best day, you cannot earn the love of God. It does not matter on your worst day, you cannot earn the love of God. The love of God is fixed on you by the blood of Jesus, so that when you appeal to Him in your best day, or on your worst day, you're getting it 100%. And what happens to us is this, we walk around so miserable, so heavy, always complaining in our hearts towards God because we feel the burden of self-righteousness. And self-righteousness is this, God will not receive me unless I'm getting it right. And so I have to get it right. Friends, that is what kills the Christian. That's what kills a church. Because instead of people coming in and they being a freedom to love because the concern's not on yourself, when they come in, all they sense is a self-centered, self-righteous atmosphere that no one is welcome unless you're getting it right. So what's at stake this morning is much more than just we need to be Jesus to the world. What's at stake is your own freedom. And if you settle for what the Pharisees settled for, you will be miserable for the rest of your life. I have lived most of my Christian life under that yoke. And as your pastor, as your minister, I want to try and set you free from that this morning. Is that the grace of God is powerful? What? To motivate you so that you can keep your salvation? No. It is the joy of the Lord that is your strength. How does it come? It's knowing that you have been given this thing as a gift that the grace of God called you and the grace of God can keep you and you will not start living the kind of joyful, love-empowered, out-focused, missional life that Jesus wants you to enjoy, what he calls the abandoned life, until you deal with the fact that you are saved by grace. And I feel like Jesus this morning fighting for you because he's saying, you've got to know what God in heaven is like. And if your understanding of what he's like in heaven is this heavy, cold judge, I want to say you will come out in your Christian walk the very opposite of what Jesus called you into. He's called you into freedom. And freedom is knowing. It is by grace I have been saved through faith. And you might say that's a dangerous gospel. It is. You might be saying, does that mean I can do what I like? No, but I want to tell you what, you will not be motivated to live for Jesus until you know that what you have been given has been given as a gift, not a loan, not wages. You know what kills love for God? Is that you feel like you have to owe him all the time. Do you know what generates love for God? Is that he's given you so much. It's an abundance. How can you give that back? You can't. You know what will draw you into a greater prayer life? You know what will open up your wallet to give? You know what will make you so excited to come to church? It's knowing that what you've been given, you can't earn. And the response of the Christian is, my life is an overflow of what Jesus has done for me. And so when God calls me, like he, Jesus was saying in Luke chapter 14, give all you have, you're going, God, it's so little compared to what you've given me. If you switch that around and going, I've got to give so much back to God, you have, de- you have reduced salvation to a tiny pea. But the person who understands that they've received grace, that God has given them salvation, because of mercy, gives back far more than a person that lives under the yoke of fear. Because you've got so much to give. You're never in deficit. You're living off the abundance of Jesus. Friends, this morning, there might be some of us here that are going, you know what? I feel like this dishonest manager. I have not stewarded what God has given me. And in actual fact, this morning, if I had to stand before God, my conscience is not clear. I want to help you this morning. the only option that is available to you is to appeal for mercy. What Jesus is wanting the world to see in this parable is that the posture of how the Father wants you to see him is one who's willing to cancel debt. And this morning, you're never ever going to have a clear conscience. Never if you think that you're going to have to keep up a religious system, a kind of tick box of making it right before God, the only way you move forward in your faith, the only way you come back to a place of feeling the presence of God in your life again, the only way that you can start to make right is you begin to believe. That's it. You receive the picture that Jesus is trying to teach you in this parable, that the Father, the Master that He is portraying, is scandalously generous. He's generous. And I want to say this morning, don't waste any more time. Embrace the mercy of God. And mercy means that you have no bargaining power in your hand. You don't come to God and say, if I can just do this more, I'll try and do that better. Mercy saying, Jesus, I need you. I need you. You might be going, well, what if I knew what I did was wrong? Some of us here this morning has a real question. Will God really forgive me if I knew what I was doing was wrong? That as I was doing it, whether it was by somebody else or the Holy Spirit, You knew that you knew that you knew what you were doing was wrong. Is it possible for me to come back then and still say to God, I need mercy. Yes. You might say, I feel so humiliated by that. Until you feel that and receive it in that state, You have not received mercy. Mercy goes, I'm free. Mercy goes, really? I'm free. Mercy goes, I'm coming to you with this. I know my debt feels even longer than before because I knew what I was doing was wrong. Mercy goes, there is no other way. I forgive you. And the only way you receive that is if you believe it. And the only way you can believe it is if you believe the kind of picture that Jesus was painting of the Father and that the Father's posture towards you is one of grace. Well, you might be somebody here in the room saying, I don't know if I like that. How can God let people off so easily? Well, I want to say to you this morning, wait your turn. Because you know how God humbles us? that's how he had to do it with me. is He begins to kick all the pillars of self-righteousness that we begin to lean on. I grew up as a church boy. I was memorizing scripture from the age of two or three. Those salty tapes was, I, "I knew what it was to pray. I had such a self-righteous attitude. You know what I was called by one of my close friends at school. I was called a Hitler, because I'd walk into the classroom and I would make people feel so bad about the fact that they were so far from God. And you know what God had to do to me? He literally had to grind that pride into the ground. Where to the point I got to a place in my life where I struggled with a deep depression. And it was only at that point when I realized I'm not earning any way back to God getting any favors from him but the foundation of my relationship with him was how it started was mercy and the second that came into my life with it came the greatest freedom that I'm trying to persuade you to walk in this morning you might be saying well did that mean it was easy for me to sin Because I want to say this morning, what motivates us to godliness matters. Loving somebody motivates you far more than fearing them. And I want to say this morning, in your marriage, if you want the best to come out of your spouse, if you want them to feel like they can go the extra mile for you, I guarantee you're not gonna get it by holding a checklist over their head. You know what that leads to is sheer resentment. But you know what inspires my love for Marina? You know what makes me want to go the extra mile for her? You know what makes me so thankful and so appreciative of what she is in my life? Is when I watch her sacrificially serve me, let me off the hook, give me space, encourage me, accept me love me just the way it matters, I tell you, I've got no greater admiration for anybody on this earth than for my wife. And when it comes to deciding if I'm gonna go the extra mile of washing that cup or changing Sarah's nappy or let her, even if it's a poo one, which is a big deal for me, or letting her do a number, I realize there is this intrinsic desire to please her. because of what she does for me. You know, I wouldn't change that for anything. And this morning, the foundation of what motivates us to love God and serve Him is thankfulness. It's the scandalous amazement of how loving and generous God is towards us. Now, you might be saying this morning, well, maybe God will let me get away with what I've done. Maybe. I can keep doing it on the sly. If God is so generous. Maybe, just maybe, he'll condone my sin. I want you to remember the way you grew up this morning and how grace plays out. I've watched Ma- well, let me not talk about it. Let me talk about me. Don't worry, Mark. I'll let you off the hook. <laughs> my last thought for this morning. Sarah has started to do a very annoying habit around the, the, the dinner table in her high chair. She has to be close enough to the table for us to feed her. But she also then is close enough to pull the tablecloth off. And uh, she's at the age now where we're realizing she's able to know when she is doing something that she's not supposed to do and when she's not. And it starts off like this. And this is how God works with us. is we say to Sarah, Sarah, No and we do it very nicely she does it again Sarah no 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 <laughs> then she goes bye 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 <laughs> she does it again I flick her and my, my daughter actually has quite a high pain threshold so it's got to be quite hard <laughs> And she cries. And she goes back to eating. Fine. Peace. And I want to say to you this morning, the Father is so soft with us. Remember when you're a Christian, you're a son and daughter in his family. And we begin to betray that God is condoning sin because he is so gentle with us. And he really is. And the way that you begin to know that is when you start to think about how much he lets go of Or takes time to show us he is soft in his heart towards his children. But remember, a father cannot leave the behavior as is. It's unloving. Because can you imagine the destruction caused when Sarah rips the tablecloth off and our supper and everybody else's supper goes flying? And in the end, it's destruction. And I want to say to you this morning, if you are stuck in a sin or a transgression, don't discount the kindness of God towards you. We think we can get away from him because he's so soft. (laughs) But over a period of time, he ups the ante. And that's not God being against us, that's him being for us. And so this morning, I want you to leave with the right picture of how God is towards you and me. And I want to challenge us this morning of going, how seriously do we have this incredible picture, this incredible reality of a Father who is so generous towards us, so tender-hearted, Jesus says that picture is what he wants us to tell the world about. And so this morning, receive it for yourself, but then pass it on to others. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning that there would be a fresh wave of your mercy that would come upon us. And I just sense that this morning, some of us again have just come back to the awesome wonder of your love for us. And like that shrewd manager, you're asking us to know our master. Lord, I want to pray for us as a congregation, from the person who feels from the furthest away from you, who can recognize it so starkly this morning, they need the mercy and grace of Jesus. To the one who's been coming to church for years and has maybe forgotten, but been reminded again this morning of how you choose to relate to us. Father, I pray for the wave of mercy to fall upon us afresh. And that, Lord, in our hearts this morning, something would happen that would release in us as a congregation a passionate desire to revel in this glorious freedom, but also to usher people into it. And so, Lord, I want to pray this week you would not let us go. There are lost sheep around us. There are people that desperately need this message of mercy, that need to have the Father of heaven portrayed to them as a God who is generous in Christ. Lord, I pray that this morning you would stir that family member You would stir that colleague, you would stir that friend in our hearts afresh. That we would pray with the same zeal you had, Jesus. And that, Lord, would go out and in a simple message, a simple way, a simple posture, pursue those that need to hear you. In Jesus' name, amen.